0: Hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of the Pitch from Kansas City. I am the host of the Streetwise podcast and the editor in chief of the Pitch from Kansas City, Mister Brock Wilbur. How is everybody out there? How is December treating you? Uh, boy, the uh, the weather is uh, all over the place. Sixty five degrees the other day, and then uh, you know it 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 seems to be going downhill quickly. Uh, snow on the horizon, but. Um, I don't know. A couple of random days of summer here uh, weren't the worst thing. Even my mailman like shouted at me the other day. Like, I- I've been doing this job for eight years. Never seen a December like this. And it was just like, that. Yeah. Okay. If 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 the mailman who is uh, out there each and every day wants to tell me that uh, in a decade he hasn't seen weather like this, I listen to him. That seems. Uh, I I trust him to tell me when things are weird. Uh, speaking of weird, I've never uh, really gotten to trick my brain into stop doing this, but uh, it's always odd to me when uh, when one of my many mailmen at any of my addresses uh, like waves and says, like, Hi, Brock. And I'm always just like, how do they know my name? And then like three seconds later, I'm like, oh, they come to my house twice a day and, and read my name on dozens of, of pieces of mail. Like, yes, a, a year into a location, they probably have figured out that I am Brock uh, from that. Uh, so it's just one of the cool, fun ways that I can be super dumb, uh, in my own way. Uh, we are entering, uh, Hanukkah here, uh, and it is, uh, an, an awkward, uh, interesting time here. Uh, one of the things that I, I got from being in Los Angeles for more than a decade was that, uh, I celebrated, uh, did more Hanukkah time than, uh, than Christmas parties. I mean, a pretty fair amount of, of, of everything, uh, because what is the point of, of not throwing the most lavish holiday party you can, Uh, no matter your belief system um so yeah um kind of been missing that since moving out here um i i I think what i learned uh in my time uh out on the coast was sort of uh, this idea of a few different religions believing into my own set of beliefs and uh taking some new and interesting things from them and i i don't know i i guess at some point uh there uh Jewish beliefs uh, became part of who I am and part of my DNA. And and now it feels it feels odd to have them removed. So we are um, doing a number of uh, of video Hanukkah celebrations with friends back out there. Um, It feels nice just to be doing uh, the ritual again. It feels nice to be back uh, part of the community. And it's uh, it's nice to be doing it in a way where we're we're not the weirdos calling in from the Midwest while everyone else is in the room together. As long as we're all online, it's equally weird for everybody. So excited to be done chasing that Hanukkah feeling again and able to go back. Um, I um, I do miss the rest of of the high holidays. Uh, I do feel like I got uh, I, I got to adopt into the tribe a little bit. Like I one, one quarter pretty good at all this. Uh, know how to. Know how to pronounce most of the words uh, at this point in my life. Uh also, uh, if you have me to your passover, there is a 90% chance I will find the common. I am very good at locating the officomen, uh, uh especially because people tend to hide the common somewhere up high. And for a 6-7 guy, that's um it's it's your line of sighting it for me. You're just uh you you didn't count on me coming, but there I am. Uh if 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 you are unfamiliar with the practice. Uh, the Afikomen is where, uh, something is hid in the house, uh, and the person to find it, uh, gets, gets a reward. It's, no, it's supposed to be a game for kids, but, uh, it's also a great game for drunken adults. Uh, and it's an excuse to, uh, accidentally let, uh, everyone that's come to your party just tear your house apart, going through absolutely everything, uh, trying to find, uh, basically an Easter egg. So, uh, <laughs> I, I. Can't really do that part over Zoom, but um, Hanukkah here we come. Gonna gonna do gonna do our best at that. My wife's family uh, actually celebrates uh, Festivus, uh, which you might remember from Seinfeld, for the uh, the feats uh, the feats of strength and of course uh, the uh, the airing of grievances, uh, which their version of it uh, in in normal years we would uh, all take some time to write down all of our grievances, all of the people we're mad at uh, onto pieces of paper. And then we'd go stand at a fire pit and burn them uh, and then uh, roast some marshmallows and make s'mores on the fire of those who had wronged us. Uh, and I don't know, eating the the hot, sh- the hot s'more of vengeance, uh, that can be your religion, too. You can fold that in to, to who you choose to be. I it, it worked out well for my wife her entire life, and she turned out how she turned out. So, like, yeah, I, I, I want in on that. We have a great episode of Streetwise today. Uh, We have Nick's Music Corner, as always. Uh, We have a guest in uh, Aaron Thomas, uh, a television writer from the Kansas City area who has been in Los Angeles for a long time doing a lot of cool things. So we're going to chat for a bit. But first up today, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment uh, is going to read a piece from our most recent magazine. Uh, He's reading the article Good Grief, as written by our own Joseph Hernandez, uh, which is a bit about... um, it's a very personal story that is also a very uh, group-oriented story uh, about Joseph uh, losing his parents at a, year, at a young age, uh, which uh, as as one of our interns uh, is surprisingly recently, and how uh, he's trying to process grief, um, and what makes processing grief difficult uh, in a time when everyone is grieving, uh, <laughs> where we are grieving not only people who have passed, but also the, the loss of normalcy uh, and, and perhaps what others can learn from uh, Joseph's journey. So uh, it's a very personal one. Uh, we're wildly proud of him for his work on this. Uh, and so here is Jason reading that piece.
1: Good Grief, Keeping Your Head Up Through the Down Bad by Joseph Hernandez. Being in a small space for an extended period takes a toll. There are only so many television shows, movies, books, video games, Zoom happy hours, and neighbor walks someone can do before it stops giving them the serotonin they desire. With a lack of new stimulus, it shouldn't be a surprise that so many of us are looking inward. Reliving memories, whether good or bad, has become both the program running in the background and the feature presentation film in your skull. For me, some of these constantly repeating memories include thoughts of my mom, who I lost 9 years ago to a random aneurysm at the young age of 50. I was 13 years old. A year before that, I lost my dad. I've thought about my mom for the past 3,483 days, but the pandemic made those thoughts more intense. I've always wanted to know what she'd think about me setting a path to journalism, but now I want her opinion on everything that's happened since her death. What would she say about me falling off my bike or my awful spending habits? How would she react to the first and only time I got real drunk? It's been difficult to go nearly 4,000 days without having a parent to serve as a barometer on your choices, especially from such a young, developmental age. The day she died replays in my head with terrible frequency, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Seeing her foaming at the mouth on her bed, hearing her lifeless body gasp as we said our last goodbyes, it's on a loop inside of me, broadcast with the clarity of a 4K television. I like to tell my close friends that know of my origin story that I'm over it, but that's simply not true. Out of all of my family members, I'm the one who acts the most like I've put her death in the past and moved on. I'm the one who acts like everything is fine now. The shutdown taught me that I was a clown for thinking I should be emotionally divorced, free and clear, from a traumatic event in middle school. It's in the past, and that's what brings us here. With all these options available to distract us from our tragic backstories, there's always something that pops up to remind us of what's missing, or who is missing, and what they'd think about all this. How they would process this. Would they do better than me? Would I do better with them? Yes and yes, almost assuredly. The thing that we're going through? The kids these days call it down bad. Grief, avoiding the sickness, politics, and general fear of what the future holds should have everyone going mad. These pains are especially prevalent among those that have lost a loved one due to COVID-19. Those are losses that were avoidable with a proper federal and state response, something the United States didn't embrace early, and still refuses to treat with respect as the virus has spread to 11.6 million cases and claimed 250,000 lives as of press time. The stories of the lost ones as a result of the virus vary. Some were as cautious as possible and unfortunately caught it. Some were dismissive of the guidance. Others had no choice but to be out in public. In the case of Julan Bonago's mother, Celia Yat Bonago, she was one week away from celebrating her 40th year as a nurse for Research Medical Center. COVID-19 took her life on April 21st. I didn't really cry that evening, and I was more like, well, this is weird. I knew this day would come, but I didn't realize it would be this soon. I looked back at it and I was just there, Bonago says. I was in shock. I can't believe this is happening. What do I do? Julian Bonago's mother came into contact with a patient who showed symptoms on March 23rd, and she took all the necessary precautions to prevent possible spreading. Six days later, her fever was over 101, and she wasn't eating. She began to feel better over time, but it was too much to overcome. Yap Bonago immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines after graduating from Aquinas University with a bachelor's in nursing. She touched down in Florida before finding her way to Kansas City, where she'd start her own little family a husband, two kids, and all the love anyone could ask for. In an interview with CNN, Julian Bonago promised that he'll remember his mother as a strong woman who successfully fulfilled her American dream. While she loved her work, she never missed her kids' award ceremonies, piano recitals, basketball, or baseball games. Bonago's journey on coming to terms with this loss has gained local and national support. As a member of The Club, a group he coined where a requirement for entry is to have lost a parent without warning, Family and friends have come together to make their presence felt, despite the pandemic. His friends set up a shared online calendar for making sure the family had meals provided as they navigated this dark period. I think April and May we had a meal delivered for lunch and dinner, and we had variety, Bonago says. The first few meals were barbecue after barbecue. I love my Kansas City barbecue, but you can only take so much. Cards, flowers, and texts poured in. Bonago noticed that each member of the family processed the loss differently. His father, Amado couldn't stop talking about his wife. He would show old photos of her and tell stories to anyone who would listen. For Julen, it took him a few months before he could open up his mom's photo album. The family opened up a death claim against the hospital. Bonago and his family hired the services of legal firm Brent and Christy Welder. The legal team and married couple seemed to best reflect the ideals and ethics of the Bonago family. While myself and Julian are just two stories among the millions out there, I notice some of the similarities that I'm sure whoever's in the same situation can relate to. For instance, both of our lost parents took care of everyone and anyone that needed help. Whether it was simple or not, they dropped everything to make sure the problem was solved. These troubling moments in our lives happened unexpectedly, but we've somehow managed to overcome them and are now using them as motivation to keep grinding. Would I have wanted her in by my side as I grew into the person I am now? Absolutely, but I'd like to think I've done all right so far. They may not be with us physically, but they're with us where it counts, and that's all we need for now. We know we're making them proud by chasing our dreams. It would have hurt them if they saw us curl into a ball and give up. We have to honor their fighting spirits by continuing to strive for greatness. After all, it's what they did. I wish for that to be true for anyone else dealing with any kind of grief and pain, but if it's not, I hope you'll reach that point. It's not as easy at first, and it'll break you at times when you least expect it. But keeping a loved one in your memory is a great way to cope, and it's certainly one of the healthiest ways to do so. I'm not a therapist, so I can't confirm that, but Burton Rogers is. Rogers was born and raised on the east side of Kansas City and celebrated his ninth anniversary in counseling in August. His emphasis is on assisting individuals to find positive coping mechanisms after losing a loved one due to homicide. There is an overlap between losing someone to violence and losing someone to a virus, as they're both sudden losses that give families and friends no chance to say goodbye. With the uptick in gun violence in Kansas City, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and a shooting could occur where you're unfortunately hit. With COVID-19, you could take off your mask for one second in public or touch a spot that someone with the virus came into contact with, not wash your hands, and then your situation becomes life-threatening. What comes next and its precarity is a constant background threat. When he's with his clients, Rogers is looking to see if they re-experience any of the trauma they felt since the loss. If flashbacks or nightmares happen, he's trying to find out if the frequency of those go down as time progresses. I'll look at alterations in cognitions, how they see themselves, how they see others, how they see the future, and on top of that, outbursts of anger or just periods of depression, Rogers says. I'm looking to make sure that those are being stabilized as well, and also just how they're relating to other people. There could be a scenario where they find themselves isolated, and I'm looking for if they're engaging people along the way. The first thing Rogers recommended for people seeking help with grief is to find their support system. Like Bonago, it is friends and family that aid the most, and it's with their guidance that they can help the griever make the right steps with what comes next. The other thing he emphasized is to not make any major decisions in the first six to seven months, such as moving. A mind isn't in the right space to think about what's going on clearly, so it's best to stay away from a drastic life choice unless it absolutely has to happen. Flexibility is also key for people who are helping their close ones get through a tough time. There are certain moments or items, such as a song that reminds them of who they lost or the anniversary of when they were taken from this earth, that could trigger them and cause unusual behavior. The biggest piece, and this goes for any trauma piece, but particularly with homicide, is that it's non-linear, Rogers says. There's going to be ups and downs. You could have the best treatment protocol and there's not going to be a scenario where it's straight to the point. If there's one thing that I hope readers take away from this, it's that there is no timetable for healing. It could be nine days, nine months, or nine years of suffering, and all of it is valid. You have to do what's best and what's right for you in order to take the next step. Ride a motorcycle for miles and find your healing road. Impulse buy that missing piece in your collection. Reach out to your friends and family. Tell them you love them and you want to see them shine. Talk to a therapist. They're here to help, not hurt. There are still good people on this planet, and they want you to be the best possible version that you can be. There's no correct way to cope with losing someone who you held so close in your heart and soul. We're going to make it. I promise. One way or another.
0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nick's Music Corner! Put your hands together, or don't, because he can't hear you, Nick! Take it away!
2: Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. A few weeks ago, I swapped out my dying Honda Accord for a 2006 Dodge Caravan I acquired from a friend. It's the least cool thing I've ever driven, but the joy of owning it is that it's the first vehicle I've had in over 20 years with a tape deck. It has a CD player and an aux input for a phone or MP3 player, but thanks to my obsessive collector nature, I have a stack of mixtapes I made all the way back in high school. Despite having a cassette deck on the stereo in the office where I record these podcasts, I'm usually playing vinyl records or streaming stuff via Spotify and Bandcamp while I'm working. No specific reason, just because. However, throwing in a weird collection of music I taped off in my bedroom 25 years ago and running errands makes for some crazy flashbacks. Case in point, in between No Doubt's Just a Girl and Rocket from the Crips on a Rope on one of these comps was Old School from the Kansas City band Billy Goat. This track off the Mike Dillon-led ensemble's album Black and White saw some serious airplay on 105.9 The Laser back in 1995, and the band's shows were notorious for being like ass-shaking groove bacchanalias. Billy Goat actually formed in Denton, Texas, and broke up, but Dylan reformed the band with a new lineup when he moved to Kansas City in order to reflect the new sound that he wanted to explore. It's very mid-90s, as you'll hear, but damn if it doesn't still hit hard. In their second incarnation, the band would go on until 1997 and then break up once more, this time for good. Dylan would go on to form Harry Ape's BMX, the BMX standing for But moving Experience, down in Austin, as well as avant Jazz band The Malachi Papers with saxophonist Mark Sutherland and Mike Dylan's Go-Go Jungle, the latter of which has occasionally busted this tune out. Here's a 25-year-old flashback with Old School by Billy Goat. Said a brother, squashing it hard,
3: devouring the abstract, kissing the dog Stop. Give me the gym shorts, you're wearing fucking bags. I'll ignore the fashion statement, making for means dry drag. Looking like a fine I turn on my frame. Think it's like a delicate pain. Outside, stimulus, I love John Coltrane Incense inside, making love supreme Time for exercise, I got my homies mountain by Explore some new terrain, the 88, the dirty eight spikes Cool morning air expands in my lungs I pedal to the place where Dizzy and buzz love begun The ghost of the demons, the pain of oppression My love yields respect, respect the inspiration Hello Mr. Crow, he greasing me what you deserve, you better check, you're the DSS. Nuts, I push it all so extreme I'm never half-stepping this junk or sobriety i take the ladder, Got to avoid the cliches I've been there, done it It's time to make some hay And expand the perimeters Of my rhythmic fascination Spaceship to Cuba I study with the Haitian the Master drummer of the genius Augustine I may be a blanco But the hands still bleed I old school Yeah, 23, old school I was my old skateboard, fat one, and big trucks, You could ask for more? Smith grinding hard, just like the Dolphins, and I ain't no flipper. I'm mocking like Colonel Steve Austin, you know, the bionic bunghole, you better grab your gas mask. I'm getting healthy, going get you with the button blast. Oh.
0: Thank you, Nick. Really appreciated that one, as always. Uh, up next here, we are talking to Aaron Thomas. Aaron uh, is a is a television and film writer. He is an award winning writer uh, from multiple seasons of Friday Night Lights, the TV show. Uh, he's he's worked on a number of other. Big, like, just go ahead and Google him. Like the, the the list of properties is too long to list off. But we are chatting today uh, with this former uh, KCK resident to discuss uh, the show that he uh, co-created, SWAT, uh, SWAT on CBS, uh, and a lot of interesting things to get into here. The the two main stories being, um, what is it like to make a show during the pandemic that also really has to acknowledge. The pandemic, like just the, the production side of things is already tricky, but then weaving in the story side of things, a lot to do there. But uh, most importantly is um, to talk to a black creator about a TV show that he runs uh, in the era of post George Floyd protests. and And the show is entering its fourth season and it is leaning into a lot of these political protests a lot of these ideas hard and the show has never not done that the first three seasons it is always focused uh, on uh, a black cop who is from and continues to live in a neighborhood uh, where white cops have not uh, done great in the past Uh, and so it's always been sort of through the the lens of that character's eyes Uh, and in the first episode of the show uh, it involves a black kid getting shot by a white cop and, and sort of the the lack of accountability there. So the show has sort of been uniquely prepped to handle the current political climate. Uh, but it is still a show about cops, about a militarized police force. So uh, we got into talking about how you handle the nuance of continuing to make uh, a a big-budget action cop show that is trying to be aware and supportive of the national discourse around what comes next in terms of police reform. So uh, here is my interview with Aaron Thomas. I hope you enjoy. Aaron, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Um, I am
4: Aaron Rassan Thomas, Um, writer, executive producer, co-creator of SWAT on CBS, and uh, a writer of um, various television shows. throughout, you know, my career, Friday Night Lights, Numbers, CSI New York, um, Southland, Sleepy Hollow, The Get Down, and SWAT, amongst other things. I've also directed a few things at 30 for 30 on the USC football program, and I've had the fortune of working with
0: a lot of great people along that time. So first question that I'm sure everyone's dying to ask Friday night lights zoom table read to support Georgia when?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you know that's completely out of my hands. It's um, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be a part of that universe and that you know that project and I know I'm just like others I'm clamoring for you know any chance to revisit that world. Just as a fan to be able to observe. I've heard right. rumors but I don't know any details. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, that'll be, that would be a question for someone definitely more informed on that particular project than I am, but I'll be watching it soon. Whenever they do it, I'll be watching it.
0: So, uh, Stacy is a close friend of mine. So uh, I, I know, I know one person is in one, one's already down. So, you know, okay. we'll get the rest okay. of it. <laughs> so we're about to premiere the new season of SWAT and that's, I'm talking to you just ahead of this. Um, I There's so many questions, what's on the table here? <laughs> Uh, I mean,
4: it's 2020. So the kind of the question is, what's not on the table?
2: You know,
0: for
4: <laughs> uh, you know, we picked and choose what we want to concentrate on. And the biggest two elements that affect our world in SWAT, the show about militarized police in Los Angeles, are how do you deal with COVID in a mm-hmm. world where, uh, poli- you know, the job of a police officer often may involve going hands-on or, you know, having to get in a person's face. And... You know, really not even number two, they're equal. Um, you know, concerns this year is, is the political unrest. Um, right. So George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and our are show that at the heart of our show, our main character is an African American police officer who understands what it is to be a cop, but also still lives in a neighborhood he grew up in, which is predominantly African American and has had a really complex relationship with police. So, those are the two largest elements that we've chosen to to really dive into in season four amongst just the character storylines that um that we love telling anyway and uh feel like you know it's kind of a a tide that's lifted all boats you know all of our storylines that they could have been enhanced by the drama 2020 um and having to really kind of delve into even more than we normally do um you know some of the reality of uh of some of these things that that our
0: characters have to face as police officers who also live in a community. It does feel like your show is uniquely prepared to to have been surprised season four with what 2020 became because you'd already had this approach that was about the conflicts inherent in this, whereas there are 20 other cop shows about just how great cops are that I, I see the trailers for the new seasons coming. I'm like, I see you shoehorning in these things I don't think that you're prepared to write it or that your characters were ever set up to to handle these things and that that even extends to like I've seen it on courtroom dramas where all of a sudden they're in front of like a George Floyd mural and I'm like how did your white characters wind up there and why does why is this happening like I don't understand I guess it's one of those things that I guess you have to acknowledge it in order to keep making a show even if you're somebody that didn't fully understand like I I keep I, I, I keep pretty close tabs on propaganda uh, programming like live PD and cops and like watching them be cancelled at the height of the the protests and to be slowly sneaking back onto television now I'm like okay I I, I, I feel a, a very specific depression around that where I'm like it feels like a moment ended but I'm, I'm given hope by the shows that are are going to do well by this so I guess how do you How do you approach a network TV show on CBS and take on these big things for such a wide audience?
4: (laughs) Well, that's always been the question from day one. Um, You know, and I have to say, when um, when the idea for this character of Hondo Harrelson, why an idea to have how to update the character, the character was created in the late 70s and then was updated in 2003 when Samuel Jackson played him, but always had an idea for how to update that character. When the idea of this character, an African-American police officer who has kind of one foot in the community, one foot on the, in his job with his brethren on the police force, um, in order to do that experience complete justice, I, I did have my concerns when we looked to sell the concept to you know, the major networks. Um, on one hand, it seemed like a seemingly perfect home when we sold the CBS. On the other hand, yeah, there were concerns as to whether or not we're going to actually be able to tell really specifically the community side, mm-hmm. or, or does it become more so a show about cops who, you know, a cop who happens to be Black. And for my interest, if you're going to tell that story, you know, I always wanted the experience to be more than just skin deep. I, I don't believe that that all characters are the exact same person. They just happen to have different skin tones. I think real progress is when you can actually recognize the differences in background and respect it. You know, respect it and appreciate it and be able to communicate even though you come from different backgrounds. Not to try to make sure that we all have the same point of view. It's how we work out the different point of views. And so in, in developing from the very beginning, there was always a concern I have to say I've been pleasantly surprised in that when we sold to CBS, um, you know, they were very supportive of and very clear from the beginning that they didn't want one of their standard, you know, what we think, what people think of as a standard, quote unquote, CBS you know, right. cop show. Even still, and part of this may be me as, as a black man in America and in the business, there's a cynical side to me that says, okay, I hear that. I
0: hear the words, mm-hmm. you know, well, the actions actually followed that. And uh, to, to promise you to have control over the show and then to week two start getting the notes. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're yeah, yeah, expecting yeah. there. <laughs> and, and,
4: you know, on the other hand, the networks have their, their brands to protect. There's there's millions, hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. And, you know, so and this is a business that runs on fear, you know, fear, fear is the fuel. So no one wants to lose their job or being in danger of that. So that tends to lend itself to whatever the brand is for that network. They, for the most part, you know, people try to stick to that. In this case, we are fortunate. We have a good team behind us. We had, you know, from the very beginning, Sean Ryan uh, co-created the show with me, um, him having created one of the greatest cop shows of all time. You had that experience there. We had Justin Lin, who directed the Fast and the Furious movie, some of them at least, um, you know, who also had a desire to try to do something that was new and different. And then we had Shamar Moore, who, as our star, Starring as as Hondo, also had a desire to try to do something that was different. He had starred on Criminal Minds for many years, very successful um, show, and he wanted to do something that was different than what he had done before. So, recognizing that coming in, we had a team that was all on the same page as far as we don't want this to feel like the garden variety cop show, whatever you know that is. Um, and from the very beginning, from our very first episode, you know. We started off with a black kid getting shot by a white cop and what are the ramifications? That's the, the premise of the whole show where Hondo gets promoted into a leadership position is because of optics stemming off of a black kid getting shot. And so we started in a place where it was like, you know, we don't want our show to handle elements like this as, as a quote unquote, very special episode. We, want to, we don't want it to be a case where you feel like it's out of bounds or somehow foreign our guys to be dealing with very sensitive material because you know you only deal with it once every 13 episodes or so we wanted to feel like this is part of our world it's baked in you know pretty much every episode we look to have some kind of along with the kick-ass action and you know the humor that we play and, and the fast pace that we play we always want to add some nutritional value too you know something that'll engage you at least allow you to, to some of our audience maybe maybe much of our audience to to maybe consider things that they hadn't considered before um so that was from the very beginning we had we had great support from the network and from our studios sony um television to try to accomplish that what 2020 has allowed us to do is to go even deeper into it you know so it's one thing to actually get the show on the air to have that as your goal to try to engage your audience while you entertain them it's another thing where it's very rare, you get three, four seasons into a show where you kind of get a chance to, to reset a little bit, you know, to go even deeper. On a show like this, normally once you're into, if you're fortunate enough to get there, season three, season four, you kind of are what you are. 2020 allowed us with, with George Floyd, with the, uh, the death of George Floyd at the hands of police officers, with Breonna Taylor, what happened there, with Ahmaud Arbery. Um, with our setting, because we, I deliberately decided to set our show in Los Angeles, which has a very specific history between police and community, going back all the way to the very beginning of the LAPD, even before the LA Confidential days, Um, it allowed us an opportunity to kind of reset in a way that normally you would not get, which is, okay, that element that we promised in season one, episode one, that we've been able to lean into, we can go even deeper. Um, and the, I think the audience is ready for it. You know, we all felt that way. We had a meeting at Shamar's house before the season began, and Shamar was very adamant, as all of us were, is that this is an opportunity for our show, which is uniquely built for that, to, to really caps, you know, really um, capitalize on the timing and to be able to, to now, you know, through the prism that we've set up, to really kind of delve in deeper. And what we try to do, because we recognize on a mainstream network, the format, you know, we're talking about a slightly different format. We're not necessarily always preaching to the choir, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in that regard, we what we tend to do is not really trying to preach at all. It's really trying to present questions, you know, and allow the audience to take from those questions, you know, hopefully a, a productive discussion. You know off of that whether it's with themselves with others with friends whatever um, we deliberately try not to present answers but we do try to present different points of view on different topics and so you can have hopefully a more nuanced you know consideration or a conversation coming off of it um, so 2020 really afforded us a really great opportunity um, in particular with those elements and with the audience that we have where we're reaching millions of people all at the same time Every week, well, for the live audience, and then we have you know DVR viewers who watch it. Um, it just allowed us an opportunity where on a show where oftentimes the goal can be to try to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. To try to to do that while also recognizing that the audience is in a space where they're ready for perhaps a little more challenging content, and so that's what we you know look to do this season is to. You know, is to delve in, you know, even more into sensitive and sometimes
0: challenging content, but to handle it responsibly. And and I guess that that's while you guys are uniquely positioned to to handle twenty twenty, and and the storylines that that brings along, it seems like it's it's such an exaggerated challenge for your show because, as as aforementioned, you are dealing with. You're not dealing with, to add nuance into a show that was just some beat cops and you could sort of do whatever each week would be easy enough, but you are indeed dealing with a militarized police unit in a, in a show that has a cornerstone of action. Like, where is the space for nuance there? Where do you find that? You've, well, you
4: find it oftentimes in our, our character stories and how our characters um, make the decisions on how to approach certain situations strategically. You know, I always felt that it was an interest and irony, you know, at the very beginning, there's a conscious decision. So like we're going to create a show about Los Angeles, you know, again, has perhaps the most precarious relationship, certainly publicly with with police mm-hmm. going all the way back. Not only that, but this is where in Los Angeles, this is where the very first SWAT team was created. Not only that, but the very first SWAT teams created at the time, the first, you know, two of the biggest missions that they handled were Black Panthers and the SLA. Um, you know, the very particular racial makeups with both of those groups. You know, mm-hmm. there's a loaded history there that was always baked in from the beginning. But I always felt like, and we all feel this way with the show, is that the show's goal always is to be an aspirational show, you know, um, you know, it's not so much Batman, it's Superman, you know, it's the way we see it is that this is a show that has an opportunity to show how things could be, you know, the, to try to base it on rea- when we talk about real um, research for sure, and certainly the spirit of reality, of the way SWAT officers feel and can be in certain situations, but to also look at, you know, in a world where perhaps empathy is a bigger part of the job, you know, how can things look and feel, you know, differently? We're always gonna have our kick-ass action, which is, you know, there are bad guys to be chased down and there's cool stunts to be done. And we we do pride ourselves (laughs) on on doing that. But we we try to be responsible when it comes to, if we're going after somebody, why are we going after them? You know, um, is deadly force, you know, needed? You know, are we making sure that it's needed when it's needed? Sometimes it is needed, but are we at least, are we at least being responsible about when we use it? you know when we when we you know when we're looking at different situations that might rise up and and challenge our 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 unit you know having our guys actually have conversations about their views on certain things as we're dealing with it and not just foot soldiers put out to um to execute orders and not ask questions you know sometimes asking questions leads to a better way to do it so we try to you know put our characters in a place where even from the first episode of season four, when we're talking about in that episode, it's, it's really addresses a legacy of police and community unrest. Um, with George Floyd this year on a national scale, uh, 28 years ago in 1992 dealt with uh, Rodney King and unrest there. And 27 years before that there there was Watts that dealt also the stem from a, um, police community, uh, traffic stop. And so there's kind of one of these for every generation, you know, we address that through Hondo and his father and his surrogate son, three 17 year olds is the title of the title of that episode. But we also deal with our other, um, team members, you know, what are, what are their views towards any of this? We're, what were they doing in 92, you know, when that went down? Um, you know, and it's not just that episode, it's the entire season four that we try to lean into this. Not all of them have the same points of view on how we approach suspects or, you know, persons of interest or um, in certain cases, like really um, difficult groups to deal with, whether that's militant liberals or white supremacists, you know, um, you know, there's no, we don't look at it as there's an easy answer to any of that, but we do try to at least look at what the different points of view might be amongst our team, and have those you know conversations. So for us, the nuance comes in those conversations. You know, how would a bisexual Hispanic woman feel? You know, if we're chasing down a white supremacist versus, um, you know, kind of a, a bread and blue, you know, middle-aged Catholic who might see things a little differently. You know, right. Um, both of them have the same goal by the way, of saving lives. And, you know, but they may have different points of view on the nuance of why a person is a bad guy. Um, that's one of the things that we look at with um, or considered a bad guy, I would say. It's one of the things we definitely look at on our show is and one of the things I'm very cognizant of having I mean, grown up as a fan of cop shows is the idea of how do we define who our good guys are and our bad guys are, you know? Um, you know, and trying to expand perhaps those um, definitions, especially on the side of who we look up to and who our good guys are. You know, when I was growing up as a black kid in Kansas City, Kansas, watching Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue and <laughs> Homicide and, you know, there were characters who look like me, but the main good characters all kind of fit, you know, generally the same mode. And I feel like, you know, now is a time where you can start to, in the era of peak TV where there's more programs than ever, you can at least start to try to provide more of a variety of points of view and, and you know, defining who your protagonists are. So it's a long answer to your question, but we look at the nuance through character, you know. Um, Procedurals often will focus on the case of the week, you know, the who done it, and we, purposely set out to tell a show, to use our show to tell stories that are not so much whodunits, you know, all the time, you know, mystery, but so much as how do we get them? And the how, how do we get them, um, oftentimes is discussed between our people from different backgrounds as we're
0: going about trying to get them. To tie into what you were saying about how you're, you're getting to do some of these things in the era of peak TV, um, I think one of the wildest things to have come from peak TV in the last year is that a television show on HBO about superhumans uh, informed every white person I know about the Tulsa race massacre, and then that led to uh, genuine change coming and the exhumation of bodies and a reckoning with a 100-year-old... Fucking travesty, uh, and like that—that that part is is never not uh, equally comic book to me. That somehow that happened, but like, I'm sure that that sets this weird precedent that like, there is a power in peak TV to create change right now. Do you ever feel? Do you ever feel that what you're doing, besides starting the conversation, might actually change the conversation? Is that the aspirational goal that you're shooting for here?
4: Yeah, that's absolutely the, you know, and the dream is to, to add the conversation in a positive way, you know, to definitely try to add new elements that can make, allow us to have smarter conversations, more nuanced conversations, you know. Um, in some ways, you have opportunities now more than ever because of peak TV, because there's more material out there to discuss. On the other hand, you also have social media, which is, you know, kind of a form that tends to boil things down to the very first, you know, kind of sometimes knee jerk reactions where nuance is difficult to, you know, it's difficult to maintain um, or even to start sometimes. So there is a responsibility. I feel like the dream is to certainly have that. On the other hand, um, and I think I mentioned before, I think part of it is, part of it is, is me as a black man, perhaps, is there's, there is a healthy, Cynicism sometimes too, with how fast that can happen. Perhaps realistic is is maybe more the word and I think it requires patience, you know, to understand that most likely, you know, based on the history of America as as a country, the world really, human nature, is that it takes a while for things to really change. You know, it's like steering a cruise ship, you know, So what the hope is, is that you can move things, even a centimeter, you know, try to sow some seeds so that better conversations can be had off of what you're doing. And then better conversations can be had off of whatever's done next, you know, to continue the progress. Um, You recognize one episode of television as, as impactful as it can be. The true impact may not be for years to come. I mean, the impact to me, for me, of watching Hill Street Blues didn't manifest itself until I was a grown man. Um, it's years, you know, so you have generations right now that are watching peak TV. What are they watching? What are they aware of? You know, I think they have a wider choice of things than I ever had when I was a kid. And you hope that they're inspired to push things even further to have a choice, you know, um, just a wider range of, of things. I think that's, it's not only good, I think for the culture, for the country, but also I think business-wise, you know, it it allows you to have just. (laughs)
0: Okay, yeah. (laughs)
4: You know, but oftentimes it's the, you know, in our business, that's the only language that matters, right, is, you know, is it, are people actually gonna watch it? Can you, you know, make a profit off of it and understand it's a business? I think even business-wise, as you see, when you're talking about fresh, when people are looking for fresh stories, quote unquote, you have have such an array of things to tap into just within the cop realm. How many types of cop stories have we not seen? (laughs) Have we not <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, yeah. If you truly want to tell fresh stories, you know, they're there. So that's, you know, that's the way I look at it on a macro level is that, okay, our show existing actually shows that there is progress because I don't think our show like this would have existed 20 years ago. Definitely wouldn't have existed when I was a kid where you had a Black lead of an action cop show and you also <laughs> dealt with stuff in his Black family and Black neighborhood You know, closest I got was like A Man Called Hawk um, off of Spencer for Hire. You know, New York Undercover with Dick Wolf and Kevin Arkadai in the early 90s. But it was few and far between and none of those really were able to had the platform that we have now where you can dive even deeper into some of these uh, elements. And you hope that this isn't a one-off. You hope that, you know, even beyond SWAT, you know, there are other shows that will be on major networks that can explore things in a way that we haven't seen.
0: I got uh, one last question here before I let you get back to changing the world. But um, how does a uh, how does a KU English major wind up running a TV show in Hollywood? What what can what can somebody that's just getting into college now do to follow your path? Um, Well, first of all, you know,
4: have the love for it the love for it, you know, cause there's a lot of, you know, as, as everyone knows, the business is full of a lot of hurdles that will be tossing your way, a lot of rejection. If you truly love what you do, then look to try to surround yourself with as many talented people as possible from the, from the earliest stage, you know, even at KU, I look for the best professors. You have people like Kevin Wilmot at KU, you know, um, we're just, you know, great at what they do Try to soak up as much as you can from people that you know who are either doing what you would like to do or have done what you what you want to do and and try to just learn. I'm a big proponent that the older I get of history and learning, understanding the business of circumstances that I find myself in, you know, how do we get to this point? Um, I think sometimes you can you can help to blaze your own trail by just understanding how the business works. And that requires oftentimes a humility, a passion and a humility to, to learn from those who have been successful, to learn from those who have been unsuccessful, and to also understand exactly why you do what you do. What is it that you have to say? I've always had something to say um, since the very beginning of me doing this before I got paid. So for me, it was always, um, Can I find like-minded individuals who, you know, who can afford me an opportunity to to get what I say on a larger stage? And I've been extremely fortunate. I've had great mentors and great opportunities, and and I've been ready for those opportunities.
0: I always have something to say is a a pretty good through line. Uh, I will let you go. Thank you so much, sir. Really appreciate you talking to me, and congrats on the new season. Can't wait to see it. Thank you very much.
4: Thanks for having me. Absolutely
0: and that has been the streetwise podcast an extension of the pitch from Kansas City thank you so much for listening uh please pick up a copy of the new magazine on stands wherever in the city it's also available digitally on our website and that website is thepitchkc.com where we are doing new fantastic content for you each and every day we have so many wonderful stories uh we have important news hits we have really funny opinion stuff um just a uh, just doing great work there and proud of everyone I work with. this has just been an incredible year that we have put together uh since I've joined uh we have tackled so much and we have uh kept light on our feet and we have overcome a lot of hurdles and many of those hurdles being uh you know financial uh as well because uh God knows that we uh, live and die as the uh the local businesses here live and die and it is not a good time, and it is only getting worse, seemingly, for so many of us, uh, so that, uh, that uh, affects us as well. If you ever have a few bucks you want to throw our way, uh, over at the pitchkc.com, there's a button for donating. Uh, or you can become sort of a sustaining member of the website, get access to things before everyone else does. It's, um, it's much appreciated. Anything that you can toss away to keep the lights on as we try to continue to provide the absolute best uh, news and entertainment that we possibly can uh, continuing our 40-year tradition of absolutely living it. Um So thank you so much for listening. Our uh, kitchen will make us through. Thank you.